One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Danny, hello. Sorry, I didn't know that sounded a little bit like I was uh, calling you out. Danny Still uh, straight. We're about, to, we're about to record this podcast. Jesus, I didn't do that. Uh, um, how are you? I'm very well. Thanks, thanks for coming back into my bedroom. Nah, not a problem. To record this podcast with me. That's okay. Uh, how's your uh, last couple of weeks been for you, culturally speaking? Culturally, what have you been enjoying. I've been watching the Russell T Davies show years and years. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, if you're not familiar with, it's like a sort of family saga, but projected into the future. It starts now. And it's charting the next ten or fifteen years, so so it's he, where this is where Russell T Davies sees us going, basically. Yeah, and it's bleak. I gotta say, he hasn't got much, not, not a much hopeful hope. outlook. Um, he's not like Corbin becomes a PM. No, he's and, a fucking melt. Man. <laughs> he thinks <laughs> his uh, view of Britain is that there's a sort of Farage s character, Vivian Rook, played by Emma Thompson, doing a Mancunian accent for some reason, which I think is an inaccuracy. All these right-wing people are like the super rich. It's re- you know what I mean. Like it's like a sort of Tommy Robinson Farage, yeah thing. It sounds it sounds it, a, it, it sounds a little bit like um, back when Paul Nuttall became the UKIP leader, and yeah. there was a bunch of people being like, "He is the Labour killer. Nuttall is going to rule us all." There was a, there was a um, this weird uh, column in the, the Economist that was like picturing the future, and it was uh, written as this little bit of fiction. Uh, that begins from the perspective of Paul Nuttall as, <laughs> as, as he's about to become the Prime Minister. Well, Russell T. Davis obviously read this. It was <laughs> like, this is... He was like, someone with a Northern accent will destroy us. Yeah, so she's just sort of in the background, slowly sort of rising to power. Meanwhile, Trump wins a second term. Uh, Ukraine gets annexed. All this sort of turbulent. We leave the EU. We can't get drugs. The banks default. Oh, know, all this... oh so it's like a no-deal apocalypse. Pretty much. But the basic kind of like human drama remains the same. It's like some guy has an affair. Um, you know, this guy's in love with this person. And all the extra world building is just, I think, a little bit hysterical and confused and requires every character to sort of explain what's going on to the audience. Every It's like, oh, I've got to do this because, you know, ever since Spain did that. Mm. It's like, this is not what great drama is made of. Your weird speculative like <laughs> face of the uh, yeah. future. Yeah, it is like entertaining. I would recommend it. It's got a very strange uh, LGBTQ plotline where the one of the daughters is transhuman and wants to uh, upload her consciousness onto the the web and live it forever. And it's a bit like that's like Russell. that movie Transcendence. <laughs> yeah, starring Johnny Depp. He read that Paul Nuttall <laughs> article and he watched the movie Transcendence. And Rossi Davis is like, I've got a fucking dynamite idea for a six-part BBC series. But he was obviously thinking, you know, it's set in the future, so I can't just do a plotline about a, a young teenager who's gay or trans. I got It's got to be a future LGBTQ issue. And I'm like, part of it is like, oh, is this just testing 
how liberal the audience is. Like they would, you know, there would be no thrill in it. If the kid was just like, I'm transgender. Mm. So I've got to invent like something which sounds perilously close to what like Piers Morgan would say. It's like, oh, what's next? You are, uh, what, you just pretend to be a robot or, <laughs> you know what I mean? I'll identify, my gender is a table. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think that it's a bit, it's kind of well-intentioned, but kind of misjudged because it kind of posits a place mm. where culturally we're like already beyond trans rights when it's obviously very much uh not not the case not the case yeah it's st- yeah. still so much hysteria and negativity around it a bit like doing speculative fiction where in the first episode they legalize gay marriage and then like in the second episode they legalize dog marriage <laughs> <laughs> and then and then you know it's like but, but is this okay yeah i'm just if i think it would have just been better off if the <laughs> when i say dog marriage i mean between humans and dogs <laughs> i don't mean like they pass a law saying it's okay for dogs to marry each other <laughs> That would be it's insane. A huge scandal. I draw the line there. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think it just—it's a mainstream BBC One show. There hasn't been a show that's dealt with a transgender character, a young transgender character, like in the mainstream. And there's like Transparents, mm. and I'm sure it's happened in places, but it still feels like it's a bit weird to be like projecting one beyond that uh, already. Yeah. Um, so that's a bit strange. I'll say it's not really analogous. Yeah, exactly, I and mean, it's, and she doesn't face any like bigotry because it's too fringe as a thing. It's not like yeah. there's people like literally trying to kill transhuman people. And, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like if you remove the stigma from the issue, it I don't know. Yeah, it sounds it sounds like an odd odd decision. I, I think the flaw it's like a flawed concept because you basically have to like predict everything that happens in the future, uh, and you just have to basically make sort of like uh, some very. Uh, intrinsic calls about like how you think it's gonna go like i don't know it's, it, it says is, is climate change ravaging the earth that's ravaging the earth yes okay but it's all a bit so i feel like that's gonna be a bigger threat than like russia annexing ukraine i don't know like every everything's so mad right now that i i just don't share his worldview like if he'd made this in like 2014 it'd be so different from if he'd made it in 2015 you know like mm. if he made it before corbyn and brexit or whatever yeah, it feels like it's his whole point is that the world's so turbulent. It's like so it's weird that it's now set on like a this course. D- defined course. Yeah, 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 absolutely, yeah. Um, but I would sort of recommend it. It's kind of the hysteria is entertaining. Does and it bear, it's funny? Does it bear any resemblance to the Black Mirror episode Waldo? Is Emma Thompson that kind yeah, of Waldo? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like I think she's great, and when she kind of turns up, it's kind of like oh, it's Emma Thompson. So like great. They should have got Tilda Swinton. I think she does a good line in like Northerner, like yeah, yeah. evil Northerner type, <laughs> yeah, judging she's... from Snowpiercer. But yeah, because she's only in like in the sort of uh, background on the TV and stuff. It's a bit like she's an idiot, and then like within ten years she is the prime minister. Yeah, uh, which I know is kind of what is happening. But if you skip over, like if you skip past it, it just seems really stupid. Yeah, <laughs> almost like you don't you don't buy it. Like yeah, how did this happen? Which I know is what everyone's saying. Like how do we end up here? But I, you know, I feel like if we made a show uh, from ten years ago coming up to now, it would be more uh, illuminating about the present than speculating ten years in the future. Yeah, yeah, far yeah. be it for me to you know he's won all these Baftas and Emmys and stuff. So what do I know? Here's one thing you might know, Danny. <laughs> <laughs> what this podcast is about this podcast uh let me just wrap my brains here yes this podcast is about an overweight depressed improv actor called sam foster who lives with his mother and cheats on his diet constantly 
He decides to quit his acting job on a sleazy television prank show, and then his girlfriend Andrea breaks up with him, and his agent Herb dumps him. Uh, and then he visits his friend's daughter when it's her career day, and he rambles on about his problems to the kids, and the kids are like really weirded out, and he embarrasses his friend's daughter in front of the teacher, Stella, who he kind of had a crush on. And then Sam hears they're going to remake Paddy Javesky's 1955 film Marcy, and he's delighted because that's his favorite film, and it kind of mirrors his adult life. And he knows the director, but he just cannot get an audition. After walking out of his compulsive Eaters Anonymous meeting, Anonymous meeting, uh, Sam goes to an ice cream parlor where he meets big-time hottie, Danny Moran, who recognizes him from one of his improv shows and offers him some free ice cream. Sam is smitten and returns to the shop day after day. Their friendship blooms. Danny takes him on all these adventures, including a shopping trip for him to try on some underwear. They meet later after one of his comedy performances, one thing leads to another, and Danny volunteers to return to Sam's and his mother's apartment where they have sex. A day later, Danny succinctly dispatches Sam when he shows up at his apartment. Danny explains that he's just never been with a fat guy before when he did it for a sort of just a life experience. Meanwhile, his role of Marcy is given to a clueless young actor, real-life teen, Aaron Carter. <laughs> is what I would be saying <laughs> this is a adaptation of the film I just want someone to eat cheese with starring written and directed by Jeff Garland <laughs> this is in fact <laughs> what? just a podcast where we talk about and review films I'm Danny Moran and joining me a man who I'd happily eat cheese with Sam Foster hello thank you wasn't familiar with that film I was really wondering what was going on there when, when was that made? Like the early noughties the early noughties wow sounds real good um, but not as good as this podcast episode, which is uh, going to feature reviews of a pair of American independent comedy dramas. They are both hits at festivals. They're both the sorts of films people describe as heralding the arrival of major new talents. They're practically the same film, basically. First up, we have Eighth Grade, the directorial debut of the comedian Bo Burnham, a coming-of-age story about a 13-year-old girl who struggles with social anxiety and records YouTube videos in which she gives advice. I like the film, but I did find that there was nothing very relatable about how she sits in her bedroom and records her opinions and then broadcasts them on the internet. Uh, then Danny will give his take on Thunder Road, a film about a policeman having a very difficult time after the death of his mother. I haven't seen it, so I struggled to write a gag about it. But uh, Rolling Stone magazine said the director was the future of humanistic American filmmaking. So I must be missing out on this film. Uh, but I'll find out when Danny reviews it. Plus, you'll find out. Batman news, as we find out who, who's Batman now. Uh, Tarantino gets a new project off the ground which is the most fan fictiony announcement since that Men in Black 21 Jump Street crossover and the director of A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night makes the obvious next career move a remake of a Sylvester Stallone movie all that should leave just enough time for me to announce my latest scheme inspired by the Led by Donkeys campaign projecting a massive image of the USS John McCain onto Madame Tussauds in the hope of obsessing Donald Trump on his recent state visit to the UK, I will be launching my own massive art project to hopefully kill Donald Trump by projecting images of things he doesn't like onto buildings that he might walk past. Hillary Clinton, she's going on the Arc de Triomphe in case Trump visits Paris. A picture of a rare steak will appear on the Golden Gate Bridge. And I might up my game with some David Copperfield-esque astonishing magical uh, tricks as a giant CNN logo replaces the Statue of Liberty and the White House itself turns into a picture of the crowds at Obama's inauguration. Freaking Trump to death. Uh, I will be crowdfunding this campaign. I need $10 million. 
none of which will go towards buying me a large holiday home, a yacht, uh, or in any other way funding a lavish lifestyle for me personally. It's all going towards this important political campaign to destroy Trump and restore the balance to the world. <laughs> to the universe? <laughs> to restore balance the to the universe. Yeah. Perfectly balanced as all things should be. Sounds good. Batman. What? Uh, ben Affleck. Batfleck. He quit, right? Yeah. I think we talked about that on a previous episode. Yeah, yeah. He got too sad playing Batman. <laughs> and uh, he was It's a young man's play. game, you know? <laughs> Tragic, really. He was originally going to direct and star in the Batman. Then he was only going to star in it. Now he's not even going to be in it at all. He's just doing the catering, isn't he? <laughs> he's, he's just the best boy. Um, and he's been replaced by a perhaps unlikely choice, Robert Pattinson. He's star of the Twilight films and... Our uh, bats? More like our bats. Our <laughs> bats, as everyone would <laughs> be calling him. Um, uh, who's made, I, I guess, more sort of interesting films in recent years. Having yeah. started as a very mainstream um, actor. And uh, now he's done all sorts of like arty projects, which he continues to do. Um, but this doesn't get more mainstream than Batman. Cool. Uh, I think probably the most unlikely aspect of this casting is our Pat's physique. He's certainly got the chin for Batman. The Good. most visible part yeah. of Batman's strong, strong chiseled Batman's body. Features. Yeah, under a cowl, I think he will look pretty good. But the the last string of Batman have been chunky lads, haven't they? They've been they've been chunky lads. Uh, <laughs> ben Affleck has really bulked up for Batman in like the ultra uh, macho world of Zack Snyder. And Christian Bale's a pretty uh, muscular like guy, whereas Arpaz is mainly known as a sort of slender figure. He was a sort of sexy, skinny vampire guy. Well, he was still pretty. Well, in he was, shape, you, know, you know, he was in good shape, yeah. But he, well, I wouldn't say he was like, he didn't look like a sort of uh, like hulking. It was, it was a contrast to to Jake. Yeah, yeah. Is that the name of the the werewolf? Whatever he was called. Yeah, Jake. J- uh, Jacob. Jacob. Yeah, I call him Jake. <laughs> <laughs> you, you're Team Jacob. <laughs> team Jake is what I say. But <laughs> yes, I'm. That's who I mean. Uh, well, maybe this is you know part of the whole new direction. I would say that I had no interest in like another Batman movie, really. I've got a bit of Batman fatigue, but his casting is like, oh shit, okay, like maybe. I think maybe I'll go watch this. The thing I sort of heard about it is that it was going to focus in more on the the detective aspect. He doesn't of need to Batman. work out; he's working out his brain. Exactly, the biggest muscle. He's more of a Sherlock Holmes Batman. He'll be finding clues in the shadows and stuff. He doesn't need to be strong to find the clues. Yeah, he is. Yeah, he's a very interesting actor. I, he's kind of like what Michael Fassbender was five years ago. When he seemed just to be constantly making interesting career decisions and like seeking out cool directors to work with. Yeah, and now he's in uh, X Men: Dark Phoenix. Uh, yeah, and, yeah, and he made like The Snowman and Assassin's Creed and uh, <laughs> all these terrible films. Yeah. Um, but Rob Pattinson, yeah, he feels like I feel like we could get on. You know, he seems like a real like movie buff. Hmm. I feel like we could be friends. So I, I respect on... him for biting the uh, hand that feeds him and his trashing of the Twilight franchise. Yeah, like, he just seems like this kind of cool guy who's like, do you want to be in this movie? And he's like, sure. Then he became this UI icon. He's like, oh, fuck, now I'm in these films. But then he just used his, uh, you know, celebrity to make really interesting decisions. Yeah, and he's a very good actor. I mean, yeah, like, it's, really kind of, it's kind of funny, really. Like, both him and Kristen Stewart have both become these sort of, like, art house darlings uh, since their Twilight days. 
So there must be something just going on his previous career picks. There must be something in this new pitch they, you know, sent him. Is he going to... through an expensive divorce? <laughs> is this like John Cleese? Is he like these art house movies are killing me? You know, I'm, I'm creatively fulfilled, but I, <laughs> yeah, I live like a pauper. You know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. The reason I make so many films is because I can't afford any food. I just go for the catering. Yeah, it it, it, it it just doesn't cover the costs. Yeah, he doesn't have a lavish lifestyle, but honestly, you're on the breadline <laughs> if you're only making art house films with David Cronenberg and stuff. Why did I make The Lighthouse with Robert Eggers? <laughs> pay, pay, <laughs> pay less than minimum wage. I know, it's awful. Um, so yeah, I reckon I reckon it will be good now. <laughs> um, and I liked uh, the last two Apes movies, like Matt Reeves. Those were both like quite intelligent blockbusters. Right, yeah, the director of The Batman. So, um, Arpats, he's not known for having a gravelly voice. No. He's got quite a whispery voice. So yeah. do you think maybe he'll be a whispery Batman rather than a gravelly Batman? Oh, I'm Batman. <laughs> I'm Batman. Hi. <laughs> Sorry, what was that, mate? I'm the Batman. I'm the Batman. Batman. He'll have to say, because this film's called The Batman. So I'm, I'm, the Batman. I'm the Batman. Do you reckon there's going to be a, a lot of Batmans in it, but he's the only, it's like... I'm the, the real Batman. Yeah, like the real sh- Slim Shady, please stand up. Hmm. Uh, I'm a Batman. <laughs> <laughs> That's what everyone else has to say. Yeah. Because he's licensed it. <laughs> Do you reckon it's because he was, you know, he's filming this new Christopher Nolan movie and he was like, I'm not sure if I want to be Batman. And Christopher Nolan's like, you should, you should be Batman. You should be Batman. <laughs> Trust me, Robert. <laughs> I know a Batman when I see one. Yeah, maybe he recommended him. You should be a Batman. Well, didn't Christopher Nolan have influence on the Zack Snyder um, films? Really? <laughs> I believe so, yeah. I think he like... produced... I think he... Um, Man of Steel is like got like a story credit from jonathan nolan or something I mean, like there was some kind of creative input from the nolans into the direction that like to be taken for man of steel i seem right. to remember was he like at the end they were just gonna have a fight in a barn he's like maybe destroy <laughs> destroy the entire city <laughs> the all of the all of the east coast well, i think i think the idea was that like the snyder reboot would you know re- main re- they would remain very serious films right 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 i think like man of steel was the kind of dark knight of superman films you know like a gotcha. sort of serious very thematic like oh, deep yeah. and powerful themes, um, taking itself extremely seriously. Um, so maybe he's still, maybe still people see uh, Nolan's Batman as the high watermark, and like when they're thinking of casting the Batman, they're like, Chris, what do you think? Like, <laughs> what would you do? The other joke angle we could have this: like he played a vampire, mm. now he's playing playing a bat. What is a vampire but a Batman? <laughs> <laughs> So. Obvious, <laughs> obvious, really, isn't it? Actually, when you think about it, <laughs> he doesn't turn into a bat in, as as that vampire, but they're still sort of bat men, aren't they? Gary Oldman was in the Batman movies and he played Dracula. <laughs> I think if you played a vampire, you just probably can get a role in a Batman movie. I reckon. I reckon. Say, so. that's certainly what the evidence suggests. I think we probably squeeze this one dry. <laughs> what do you think? <clears throat> no, I think <laughs> more to go on this. More to go on this. <laughs> we'll come back to it. Yeah. Yeah. So Tarantino's latest movie premiered at Cannes a few weeks back, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, to rave reviews and some controversy, as is always the way with Tarantino. Um, but there's a new Tarantino movie that's been muted, and it's going to be an adaptation of the comic book sequel to Django Unchained. So in 2014, as we all remember, <laughs> Quentin Tarantino licensed his character for a comic book called Django and Zorro. Uh, apparently there's a successful Zorro comic book series which uh, Tarantino was a fan of he got talking to the person who wrote that uh, Matt Wagner or Matt Wagner 
And he was like, maybe Django should team up with Zoro and have an adventure. I've actually read this book. Have you? It was pretty good. It was about uh, Django's, you know, doing his thing. Broomhilda is like in <laughs> Chicago. He's off like earning money and sending it back. And then he teams up as like Zoro's bodyguard because Zoro's in disguise as his old, his old Zoro. Yeah. So it's like Anthony Hopkins Zoro. And uh, it's something about there's a rail, there's an evil tyrant sort of capitalist, and he's enslaved the local population of Native Americans. And Zoro and Django team up and free them, and, and uh, free them, and you know shootouts and swashbuckling. Not super memorable. I had to look that up before <laughs> before doing this new story. But I was like, this is pretty good. I wasn't like, this is definitely going to become a film. But but it may maybe it will definitely become a film. Maybe it will. So apparently he's looking at turning it into a movie. He's been busy with like his, his own films and he probably won't direct or write it. Maybe similar to his sort of Star Trek idea. He's like just really like eking out his last movie, just trying to get a lot of stuff, planting a lot of seeds. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And so maybe it'll be launched into a different franchise, just Django and Zorro, Django and uh This is very much Robin the kind Hood of like and... sort of uh, big kid project, isn't it? When you've got enough clout to just do whatever you want and you're sort of reading a uh, reading a comic book and it's like, what if my core character was in this? <laughs> yeah. Um But Tarantino we know that Tarantino likes sort of extended universe stuff. He's got all those uh uh crossover references between his various films, like the same fictional brands recurring and so on. Yeah, and, uh, and at one point, wasn't he gonna like? He was talking about making a prequel to both Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction called The Vega Brothers, with because uh, like Vincent Vega in uh, Pulp Fiction and uh, um, Michael Manson. Michael Manson's character is also a Vega, yeah. and there was this kind of law that they were actually brothers. So he was going to make a prequel, but then it got too, you know, it'd just be too old for them to do a prequel. Although not, with, not today's technology, with today's technology, today's technology, you could resurrect that idea, to be honest. Yeah, um, I kind of sort of interpret the story as um, because Django Unchained is sort of inspired by Django, this sort of old spaghetti western uh, movie by Sergio Cabucci, which only had one official sequel and it had all these like knockoff films, like where like it wasn't Frank Nero playing Django. A bit like, uh, I guess, uh, in Japan, you like all these Zatoichi movies. There's like 50 of them, like The Blind Swordsman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I just wonder if like Tarantino just likes the idea that his character just lives on with like a thousand new, like, you know, it won't just be Jamie Foxx playing Django. It would be like just a new character that every generation it's, it's has his, a few. It's his bond. It's my, yeah, it's my shaft. It's my yeah. thing. I think in his, in his mind, he is like Shaft's granddad or something. Oh, really? And Because it's like... Brumhilda's name is like Brumhilda van Shaften or something because she's got like a German owner. <laughs> right, okay. So in Tarantino's law, they would adopt her surname for the kids and then Shaften would be shortened to Shaft. Wow. So, yeah. Insofar as uh, Django Unchained is a film that's actually about like Amer- America's uh, past of slavery and is, ex- and is examining it, I guess it waters it down somewhat to lean into the sort of exploitation aspect well, of, you know, what if he just frees slaves around the world and <laughs> you know, teams up with other fictional characters? And Well, yeah, it's a bit like Django Unchained is like this kind of uh, genre, meta, textual Tarantino thing. But it's like maybe not that, but just like a straightforward Western from now on. Yeah. Seems to be like <laughs> yeah. uh, what this is muting. But, you know, I like Zorro. I like Django. Let's put them together. <laughs> <laughs> Let's bring them together. Let's see what it. happens. Get Antonio Banderas to play Zorro again. I think that would be great. 
So the director, um, Anna Lily Amipour, who's best known for making A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, that sort of Iranian vampire film, uh, the Batman film. Yeah, future Batman in that. Feature, <laughs> feature Batman, <laughs> definitely in there. Um, her next project has been announced, and she's going for a perhaps surprising um, uh, idea. It's going to be a remake of a Sylvester Sloan action film called Cliffhanger, but with a female cast, or at least a female-led film. So yeah. Stallone's going to be gender-swapped. Uh, into a woman uh in cliffhanger which i haven't seen made in 1993 uh and sylvester sloan climbs rocks and fights terrorists i believe uh and Paul said uh, this about the film uh, we are setting out to create a thrill ride on the mountain which taps into the primal side of an action movie where you see what a person is capable of doing to survive in the most extreme situations push to the limits add to that some high stakes espionage and a badass female mountain climber as the lead and it becomes a truly epic reinvention of what made the original cliffhanger movie so fun and so thrilling. Um, <laughs> she says, I've always been attracted to the theme of mountain climbers who, like filmmakers, have a certain madness to them. I love genre and fantasy. And in this type of survival film, you're playing with real fear. <laughs> yeah. Now, that's some slick promo uh, talk. From well, she's talking the talk. She's talking the talk. Yeah, I've seen a bit of cliffhanger. I think it was just one of those, it's like diehard on a cliff. You know, one man against yeah. stuff. But He's on the Nakatomi cliff face. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but there's less amenities because this <laughs> is a cliff, That's isn't a cliff. it? Yeah, I don't know. Like, her previous movies are quite dreamlike and woozy. I wouldn't say they're really designed to get your pulse racing. So, definitely her working in a different genre. There's a uh, brief synopsis here of the original cliffhanger. Yeah, Do you want a reminder? Yeah. Uh, Stallone played a master mountain climber haunted by his inability to save the life of a friend that friend was trapped on a mountain range and she slipped and fell to her death while Stallone's character was attempting to rescue her a year later Stallone is summoned back to the same mountain range to rescue a stranded party it turns out that said party is a group of terrorists looking for a whole lot of money scattered throughout the mountains so he's got to kill them I guess rather than rescue them yeah, so he's got to he's got to redeem himself for failing to save his friend by killing a bunch of, <laughs> of other stranded people. Yeah, doesn't sound quite quite right, but uh, yeah, sure, why not? <laughs> <laughs> Reminds me a little bit of uh, Prevenge. Maybe, yeah, maybe it'll be like Prevenge. Also, I'm pretty sure the beginning of Ace Ventura when nature calls is like a piss take of cliffhanger where he fails to save the raccoon on the cliff face it goes into like isolation <laughs> <laughs> will it be as good as that Jim Carrey was in a bad batch it's all coming full circle wait a second uh, a bad batch that's another Amipore film right yeah yeah which wasn't very good but like when you were saying with like um, that movie Mandy mm. it's like you know, I've watched uh, El Topo what, 4,000 times, but this is like, yeah, but Alejandro Horowski is clearly like a really weird guy. And like those movies are very sort of sincere. And if you just try and age that aesthetic. Weird. Yeah. But, you know, I'd rather this than just, you know, Mark Wahlberg is remaking Cliffhanger or whatever. Absolutely. Though if he's in it, that would also be good because I just like him as a screen presence. Do you want to go to Wahlberg's? There's one open in Common Garden. Seriously? Yeah, yeah. I thought Wahlburgers was a faili- failed business. Not in Covent Garden. <laughs> Garden. Okay. I saw some pictures of it. It's got uh, all the Wahlburgers filmography just written on the walls, like Mark and do Donnie. They call, do they call him the Wahlburger? Because uh, you said the Wahlburgers filmography. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> the so Wal- when, when you're in there, he's the Wahlburger. Well, it's the Wahlburgers. They're like, uh, they're a family, right? The Wahlburgs. <laughs> the Wahlburgers. Yeah, sorry, I'm getting confused here. 
But yeah, on the walls like Saw Two because Donnie uh, Wahlberg was in it. Uh, Righteous Kill, he's in that. Wow. Um, and like Transformers Four, it's Marky Mark, of course. I don't know if any, there's like a, a ton of Wahlberg Does brothers. Does it look like a kind of classy joint to you? Just looks like one of the four thousand kind of burger if joints. If it's in Covent Garden, that makes it sound like it's going to be fancy. No, I think it's just like a sort of it's maybe right next to a Paul Smith. You know, you can go and spend two hundred pounds on I a T-shirt. I think it's more of a go. sort of you know Byron Burger kind of type place. All right, upmarket diner food, but not really upmarket, just overpriced. Well, Jamie uh, Oliver's restaurant chain is failing, right? So this is an opportunity for yeah. Mark Wahlberg. Wahlberg He's, smelt blood. <laughs> I view Wahlberg is the natural heir to Jamie Oliver. Uh, so I, I hopefully he'll take over and we'll have Wahlberg's Italian, Wahlberg's Chinese. I can't wait for Mike Wahlberg to sort out all the school dinners. <laughs> I think because he's got such a friendly manner as well. I think he'd be and he's got such drive, you know. I just mean he's like he's got this sort of friendliness. He's a bit like a big kid, you know. Yeah, man. Yeah, man. Okay, great. Yeah, cool. So I think he's basically like a kid who who spends a lot of time in a cryo chamber. So yeah. I, think, I think he'd be he'd be a great person to front a television program about school dinners. And I hope that that program <laughs> would be as good as the new Anna Lily Emperor. And I hope every episode ends on a cliffhanger. <laughs> oh, that's much better. That's much better. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. And now for Danny to review a film he recently saw. Was it staggeringly brilliant? Was it ass-clenchingly poor? How did Danny form a judgment? We're about to hear his thoughts. If he does a rubbish job, then Sam will tell him off. So, Thunder Road. This is written, directed, starring, edited, catering, sung the theme tune, wrote the theme tune by Jim Cummings, based on his 2016 short of the same name, which is available to watch from Vimeo and is excellent. I would highly recommend that. Early early recommendation for the short film. Good. Um, the plot is an expansion of the short. It's basically a character piece about a cop called Jim Arno, played by Cummings. And at the start of the film, which is the short film, you see him give a eulogy at his mother's funeral where in the course of his speech, he basically goes on these strange tangents and kind of has a mini breakdown. And the rest of the movie is a kind of depiction of a man in crisis. He's getting a divorce from his wife. He's struggling to bond with his daughter, Crystal. And at work, he keeps on butting heads with his commanding officer. And he's also struggling to renovate his uh, recently... deceased mother's dance academy which has been left to him and her will uh, i tried to look for a clip i tried and i did look for a clip <laughs> and there wasn't a clip available you succeeded in looking for a clip i succeeded in looking <laughs> it was a mixed success <laughs> my, I, my aim was true but it just, just didn't work out anyway we don't need a clip i just painted a, a painted clip of those words i just said didn't i so why the 2016 short film is so good and thoroughly worth watching, just want to repeat my recommendation, <laughs> is that it's such a sort of rich character study in uh, 10 minutes. It's just kind of one shot, almost like uh, almost audition reel for Jim Cummings. And it's almost so good that it's almost to this feature film's expansion's detriment because it kind of has to justify its existence. It's like, why do we, uh, what do we learn in 92 minutes that we didn't get in 10? 
and because it's a short film it's obviously more impactful and it obviously operates in a different way and it's kind of like i think it's a mistake to almost begin with the short film because it's almost it uh starts in its strongest scene and then almost like dilutes from there uh and it just doesn't quite doesn't quite get there i would say and it never really feels like a complete movie it's a bit piecemeal in that it's just many little um vignettes some of which are more successful than others but it's basically just watching a man either keep his shit together or lose it to varying degrees and there's a point where it reaches uh, a point of diminishing returns that's the point is when the point it reaches diminishing returns there's a point where that happens got it stop me if i'm uh, over explaining <laughs> i think the reason it does work and why it's getting um some plaudits is that Jim Cummings is great in the role and uh, there's uh, something just quite well-rounded about his character. He's a sort of guy trying to fulfill an ideal of masculinity. He's almost like a kind of comic creation when you first meet him. He's like a sort of like slight weedy guy with a bad moustache who... Uh, something a bit Paul Blart Moorcorp about him, you know? Like, he's got an ideal of like he thinks he's John Wayne in his head, but he's obviously falling very short of that. And there's a thin line between tragedy and comedy. And for the most part, he kind of threads that needle really well. And he's kind of like this wide-eyed, innocent uh, slash live wire energy to him, which is quite compelling. And it also, and to an extent, it justifies and excuses the film's somewhat loose structure because it's all about him and he can sort of go off in a different direction. I think where the film most struggles is in its difference between uh, the character and the film's worldview and it's very clear that he is his own worst enemy and he makes every situation about himself and he's a bit of a sort of self-martyr. But then the movie kind of like buys into his worldview in a way which I think is uh, just a mistake, I would say. And this is most clearly in the sort of divorce plot line where his ex-wife is just a sort of two-dimensional bitch. It's like, how do these men end up with these women and father children and suddenly having bitter divorces? They have nothing in common. I do not buy these people as ever being in love. Yeah. I mean, I can totally see why she would leave him, but she's like, I don't know. I felt like she was unnecessarily unpleasant. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that kind of storyline is used to somewhat clumsily tie things all together. So this movie's got 97% on Rotten Tomatoes, but I don't think it's that good. I don't think it's as good as the short film. So I would say watch that. Third recommendation for that film. <laughs> it's on video for free. And uh, I got a, got a bit of a cliched uh, summing up point here okay let's, let's hear it i think like the protagonist is a bit of a metaphor for the film itself in that it's very sincere and honest and committed but a bit slapdash and uh messy messy yes messy thank you um did i tell you to watch the short film uh, <laughs> i've got i've written down my notes the short film's very good uh got it i'm hearing that we should watch the short yeah film. yeah it's, it's great Sam and Danny both watched a film and they decided to record a few opinions on the things they saw. You're gonna hear them in a moment or so. There could be angry disagreements, but their views are normally quite close. A joint review shared between two podcast brothers. Do they let one another speak or do they interrupt each other? The is on, the guys are in, so let the chat begin. Start talking now. Eighth grade, another festival, darling. Another film with a very high Rotten Tomatoes score. I think it's like ninety nine percent. Whoa, super duper high. It's the directorial debut of Bo Burnham, who's an American comedian. He first came to prominence as a YouTuber, uh, recording YouTube songs and stuff in like the mid noughts 
Uh, and then his career took off and he became very successful. And now he's adding yet another string to his bow uh, by becoming a filmmaker. It's about uh, an eighth grader, as the title might suggest, which means she's 13, 14 years old. Uh, played by newcomer Elsie Fisher, who I think herself was cast from YouTube. So the world of YouTube gives and gives yeah. <laughs> to us all. It was um, between her and PewDiePie for the last casting call. <laughs> she, she aged him out. Yeah. She plays a character called Kayla Day, who uh, is kind of struggling. It's a coming of age story. Eighth grade is the year before high school. I didn't, I'm learning a little bit about the American school system watching this film. Um, so she's about to graduate from middle school and go to high school. Um, and as she's passing this rite of passage, she's struggling with social anxiety and she produces uh, vlogs that she records onto YouTube where she uh, gives uh, advice, uh, which she doesn't always necessarily follow herself. And the rest of the time, she spends a lot of time um, awkwardly dealing with uh, other classmates and adults um, and uh, using a lot of Instagram and other kind of social media items. Here is a clip of her talking to her father in the car as he's driving her somewhere. Can you not look like that, please? What? Like what? Just like the way you're looking. Looking at the road? You can look at the road, Dad. I obviously didn't mean that. Just like, don't be weird and quiet while you do it. Sorry. Hey, how was the shadow No, thing? you were being quiet, which is fine. Just like, don't be weird and quiet. Because like, I look over at you and I think you're about to drive us into a tree or something. And then I get really freaked out and then I can't text my friends. So just like... Be quiet and drive, and don't look weird and sad. Please. Okay. That's worse. You gave me a content warning about this film. Yeah. Danny, you said that you got to see it, and it was like quite an emotional roller coaster, and that you uh, felt you know tired by, by the time you yeah, came I out was, of it. Yeah, I was emotionally drained. Cried a lot. So what, what time did you leave the cinema after watching 8th grade? So what time? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because you saw it in the morning, right? Yeah, I saw it like, uh, yeah, I saw it like the <laughs> matinee, like, like 1.15. Sorry, we meant like, I was so wrong, I just sort of stayed in the cinema for hours and hours, composing myself. And eventually, <laughs> 12 hours later, I crawled out. When were you able, able to leave the cinema? No, I, I probably saw a similar time to you. I saw yeah. like the... So I, saw, I saw the 1.15. Yeah, yeah, the first well. the first showing of the Prince Charles. Right, yeah. So I was just th- what I was getting at is that I feel like we had similar cinema experiences. Because I also emerged blinking into the afternoon. Right, right, yeah, uh, of course. Sunlight feeling a bit like... Yeah. Whoa. 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 Tiring. Uh, tiring film. Um, it's it's very good. It's a, it's a, it's a really interesting kind of uh, concept in a way. It's sort of like telling a... Um, uh, quite a classic, uh, you know, American school coming of age story in certain ways. Yeah. It's clearly quite a personal film to the filmmaker because he his own background is in YouTube. And so as someone who made his career uh, through like basically home videos, yeah. uh, he obviously has a particular relationship with social media. And there's a bit of a um, increase in films dealing with uh, the increasing sort of social mediatization of, uh, of people's lives recently. There was that film uh, that you really hated, Annihilation Nation. Is that what it was called? Assassination, Assassination Nation. Nation. And there was the film Ingrid Goes West, starring Aubrey Parser, about someone who's obsessed with uh, social media, and it's all about yeah, uh, yeah. mental health and social media and stuff. Um, and this is kind of dealing with similar subject matter, but I think from the perspective of somebody who's like been through it himself and is yeah. kind of examining what the effects of, um, uh, of this kind of highly mediatized uh, upbringing world are on basically the generation after him. Bo Burnham is the same age as me and you yeah possibly he's, younger he's he's a one week older than me wow <laughs> so he's slightly younger than you um 
And so I think it's kind of particularly interesting for people of our age to watch this because we kind of had a bit of a similar experience in certain ways or rather got the kind of beginnings of it. Yeah. And I was really feeling watching the film as well. I was like, I am exactly like, I'm just like Kayla. Yeah. You know, I mean, except that I'm, a, I'm dealing with this stuff as a grown man where I've got a lot, you know, more like emotional resilience and, and, you know, and she's having to deal with it as a 13 year old who also has to deal with the stuff 13 year olds have to deal with like puberty and, you know. Yeah. Well, I read an interview with Bo Burnham. He said like he was suffering from anxiety. He like started having panic attacks. And so, you know, like every, everything you create is a self portrait, I guess. So yeah, it's sort of his experience. But I, as I, a twenty-something, still, but reflected. right, exactly. But you're like, you know, what what is that like for people who are thirteen having to go through that? I mean, she spends a lot of the time on this uh, in this movie. Like, she doesn't go to bed early because she's on her phone. That's me. Yeah. And then, like, I felt when she was recording her YouTube videos, giving life advice to the audience, I was like, that's my fucking podcast. She's, <laughs> just, she's a podcaster. It's like, we we are the same. Um, it's held together by a really stunning central performance by Elsie uh, Fisher, who. I guess is kind of playing someone who's close to herself, given that she was cast from YouTube. Uh, but she just does a stunning job. Obviously, like a brilliant actress um, and very well directed by uh, Burnham. And I don't know how thoroughly scripted the film was, but the dialogue in it felt so naturalistic that yeah. it almost seemed like it was improvised. I don't know if he just read a script with a lot of likes and whatevers and somethings in them, but uh, it's all it's all delivered in this highly naturalistic way, and it's so it's it's the, the the realism of the portrait makes it an un- acutely uncomfortable watch yeah. at certain times i mean there's another element which is quite classic to any coming of age story is like awkwardness and social embarrassment and anxiety and stuff and i think one of the strengths of this film is how specific the nature of that experience is yeah um and uh, all of the scenes of that put her into these difficult situations like going to a party where she doesn't have any friends and stuff um are uh are, are so powerful because of how much you believe in the uh, psych- psychological realism of the main character. Yeah, yeah. Well, I know you, you didn't make this connection I made to you afterwards, but I felt like it was very strongly uh, drawing on the film Girlhood, the Celine Sciamma film. I don't know if this is just a sign of my own lack of cinematic literacy that I've, you know... I pro- what it was that inspired he had, by. A mili- he had a million influences, but it's, this is just the one movie that I saw. But uh, Girlhood has a similar thing of dealing with, like... Um, uh, the sort of prosaic uh, adolescence of somebody as they deal with the normal stuff like a lot of kids have to deal with except in girlhood it's um, a very uh, sort of poor um, black girl in the Parisian suburbs yeah it's more culturally specific yeah well, story. well she's I think they're both they're both very specific but in girlhood she's dealing more with like material problems like yeah. poverty you know in like uh, uh, that, that kind of thing crime and violence um, and this is dealing with like social issues and like mental health more but they both have a similar approach of investing a lot of sort of um widescreen cinematic grandeur to these like prosaic everyday experiences via heavy techno beats (laughs) (laughs) so in both films they just like constantly have these needle drops of this like epic techno music while people are just kind of going about their business and i think it's quite an effective way of um lifting up these people's lives and kind of it's like it's like the film's promise to you that like this is something that's worth getting interested in, not like some triviality that can be dismissed, you know? Yeah, because it's, uh... I mean, because I'm just remembering from your reviews of these other shitty films that I've not seen, <laughs> um, Assassination Nation and Ghost West, and it's got a bit of this kind of like dismissive attitude of like the you know social media and it's this superficial and shallow, and the people who use it and get invested in it are a bit like you know dumb and it's kind of patronizing. Well, yeah, I think that's like a huge part of why the film's so good is that there's no uh, archness to it. 
which is perhaps uh, surprising because if you've seen Bo Burnham's stand-up, it's very like laced in irony and uh, very clever and referencing and meta occasionally. And this one is just very sincere. I read somewhere where he said like a lot of YA stories, usually about you know Harry Potter or whatever. He says like they're not fantasies; they're just like they're almost like more realistic because that is what your life is like. It's like the only thing comparable to being a teenager is like the world ending because you're so like your emotions so out of check. But um, yeah, the kind of genius is just uh, making you investing you so much in the main character that you just see it so through her eyes. That like when you go to the, when they go to that party, I'm like Jesus Christ! Like this, I was it was a tense watch. I very, found it. it. I like, found it to be a very tense watch. And there's one scene in particular about two thirds of the way through you know, that I, I literally, I literally couldn't watch it. I, I just had my head in my hands. I was, I was just waiting for it to end because it was like uh, I could see where it was going from quite early on. Yeah, I think it's very well kind of signposted that there's going to be a difficult scene ahead, and it's yeah. you know. I mean, it's a it's a remarkably dark film, actually, in certain ways, and it doesn't flinch away from the risks that I think relate certainly related to new technology, but are also just you know related to uh, growing up as a young uh, woman entering you know like sexual maturity or other people starting to see you in that way um, uh, that uh, that she that she faces. So like the the stuff she has to deal with is not you know purely kind of like um, mental. Uh, no you know self-confidence issues but it's like actual threats <laughs> yeah yeah um which uh which i think the film presents in like a way that is probably one degree away from going too far you know i think yeah it was almost like you know you can't do this to me. i think you know <laughs> if it if it had, if it had been worse than it was i think i just would have been like this film was exploitative <laughs> yeah yeah um but i think it's quite it's quite cleverly judged there was also uh i think in terms of depicting that like the the, the differences that kids have to face growing up today it was quite a clever decision to include a scene where they do like a shooting active shooting drill <laughs> where yeah. they sort of taught like how to deal with uh, like a school shooting and they've got some guy who's like teaching them like what to do in the event they hear gunshots and that and that sort of thing and the, the film leaves you with this overwhelming impression of at least it did for me i just came out was like man life is fucked up like for, you're growing up these days it's so fucking weird i mean it's just so intensely weird i, I think there's something deeply weird about social media and uncanny about it anyway. Yeah. There's a lot, there's a lot about your relationship or like anybody's like sort of relationship with uh, their phones and the internet and social media that I think is like stressful. I mean, there's, you know, a lot of um, uh, statistics to support this. I think that there's like, you know, high suicide rates amongst teenagers and things like that. But I think the, by focusing in on this, like one particular adolescent experience, you really do, get this sense of like just the bizarreness of of what life is like in this world yeah well i think that's like another really clever thing about the movie is that it's all uh why she's so relatable as a character and why you get such a sort of insight into her is that you see her sort of like perform in all these different scenarios and like even like the opening is like a vlog where what she's saying is clearly the polar opposite of how she's feeling uh and there's you know the whole the character reveals themselves when they're a disguise thing i know that's like as old as greek tragedy yeah but <laughs> it has been like very cleverly uh utilized in this movie and yeah it is like uh 
you know, when you're a teenager, you're like, oh, there was a much cooler party I wasn't invited to, but like, oh, you just check Facebook and like, there definitely was, you know, like, <laughs> and there was a photo album called Cool Party. And well, th- these I wasn't days, there. these days, you you can't escape the bullies, you know. Yeah. Before you could just go home and they weren't there, but now they're always there. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, always... it's a living hell, isn't well, it? <laughs> 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 it just seems fucking. I awful. guess like you know, you can find your tribe a bit easier using social media. Like, yeah. there's a few moments where it's kind of like a positive force in our life. It's not like out and out negative i didn't but find yeah. like, i didn't think it just like I amplifies didn't find the film sort of preachy about it no I think. I think that's why i liked it is that it wasn't it didn't it didn't feel like a sort of cautionary tale about here's why you shouldn't use instagram too much but that it just felt like here are the obstacles that you have to you know the trials and tribulations you got to deal with as a sort of modern child growing up um and and it has i think part of the edge to it comes from is the fact that in a lot of these like coming of age stories, there's this sheen of nostalgia to it because it, they're made by like older filmmakers who, you know, recalling the awkwardness of youth in a sort of fond way, and it's like this rite of passage. Every kid goes through it, and it's difficult at the time, but you know, it's all basically fine by the end. And yeah, and I think this film doesn't really have that attitude. It's more like these are serious risks, and bad shit could actually happen to you, and it's like you could be scarred for life, and it's actually really difficult. Yeah, yeah. Um, and maybe that's just because the the filmmaker is closer to that time himself. Um, that, and I don't know, I don't know. So let's risk, risk of getting much, much too wanky about the whole thing. But no, please, <laughs> my sort of wankiest possible take on this would be that it's like uh, reflective of a of a, like a, a shift in sort of generational like pessimism. You know that the it's it's more reflective of a world in which like the future is quite uncertain and you're not set on this path where you have like a difficult adolescence and then you know then you sort of settle down and then you're fine as like a grown-up which is the kind of undercurrent of a lot of like nostalgia driven yeah, yeah. Like, high school movies but rather it's this deeply uncertain and fluctuating world where there's you know constant threats and like weird shit going on and uh and that's just what it's like growing up it's you know but i, I think i think what sort of I mean that makes it sound like some sort of gritty mean drama but that's a lot of that is offset by it's very funny uh she's got a really nice dad key heart string tugging aspect of the film i feel that's a recent trend in movies nice, nice dads. dads yeah what else what else what else have been nice like dads call in? me by your name nice dad oh yeah nice dad the other the quite problematic movie girl had a very nice dad in it right yeah but i think it's just part of the movies doesn't feel the need to externalize uh problems like you know, it's hard enough just existing in the world. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to come from like a broken home. Like yeah. back to like his point about YA things, like your parents don't understand, like so many protagonists in uh, YA, like um, uh, stories orientated towards teenagers, like they're orphans because it's like your parents don't get you. They might as well be dead. Yeah. Like, you yeah, know, yeah, 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 yeah. how do I reflect the experience of my parents? It's too hard to write complicated relationships. They're just dead, you know, yeah. it's well, easier. This film <laughs> like, does half of that by giving her like one parent. Yeah, but he's so nice that he's... Oh, he's so he's, nice. He's so nice. It compensates. He's delightful. And also, she is very nice. Yeah. And it's and it doesn't... It doesn't... You know, there's 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 optimism in the film. It's not like a deeply pessimistic film, but it's just got a... It's just got this, like, edge of genuine danger and risk to it that I think a lot of movies of its ilk do not have. So, I thought it was great. I thought it was awesome. I loved it. It's in my best best of the year. Well, halfway through the year. It's in my... It's in there. It's in my list. It's right in there. It's right in there, mate. Yeah. I would be interested to know. I mean, it's the sort of film that made me want to hit, like, not just to sound like I'm trying to generate content for this podcast, but I do want to know how other people related to it, you know? Because yeah. I found it quite weirdly relatable given that I'm not a 13 year old girl. Yeah. It reminded me, I know it's America. like uh, 
basically the similar subject matter but it reminded me of like inside out where i just like but in that they had to create an entire fictional world this guy just did it <laughs> without like you know an internal uh, sort of 50s factory workings of your brain that's an interesting comparison actually like another film about like adolescence that deals with mental health in more of a genuine way rather than just treating it as you yeah know, just this like oh it's awkward growing up or whatever yeah 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 hmm good stuff check it out eighth grade in in cinemas now or at least in one the what, prince charles what, cinema. what grade would you give it i give it uh what uh, eighth grade an eighth a grade. An, an a plus an a grade yes <laughs> Okay, I had had this thought the other day, and I want to share it with you because okay. I saw these, you know, trailers and posters for X Men: Dark Phoenix, and I was reading this long uh, tweet, a long thread about all the X Men movies and how they're about, you know, uh, bigotry and prejudice and uh, being better than your enemy and etc. And I was like, is X-Men a bit racist, though? It's like, what if the civil rights struggle was just, like, straight white guys and women? And, like, the one black character is Storm, who's, like, a sort of magical Negro cliche of, like, she's, the power She's of in touch with nature. Yeah. So, yeah. And it's like, I guess, like, Magneto is Jewish, but, like, none of the other people have actually faced prejudice are in minorities yeah i think that's the kind of the classic problem isn't it with like displacing social injustices into this sort of abstracted world where you're just talking about the like talking about them conceptually because then you end up like sort of erasing the actual struggles that exist yeah it struck me as that it was both like a sort of power fantasy but also a slight victim complex of like an annoying like white guy who's like you know i want to be part of some kind of struggle but i you know like (laughs) but unfortunately (laughs) i live in a society where uh that isn't the case so i've just had to invent like an entire fictitious oppression yeah and also give myself cool powers well it's a um uh it seems like it's a quite classic thing to like talk about um injustice in politics in this way that's like one step removed from how it actually exists in the world so that there's no real bite to it sort of reducing struggles that really exist or you have to make like difficult decisions and yeah uh, and stuff into um just morals where it's easy you can just see who's good and who's bad i think the the idea is that like once you've watched the x-men mutant films and you've been taught that it's wrong to like judge others then you'll be like but but why do we have homophobia in society and then you'll be able to apply your lessons to other kinds of injustice yeah it's a bit like for kids i guess it's for well, kids it's, it's all right for kids it's all right for kids yeah for kids it's fine <laughs> you know teaching morals to to children but i guess there's like you know if it, if it had any loftier um ambitions to be a political intervention in society it would be a bit glib yeah, but yeah i think i think there is some truth to that i mean there was a similar this is a random come on random reference uh but the uh there was a computer game called like detroit beyond human or something like that being human i think it was cool. called by androids and that was a similar thing where like androids are like people but society is prejudiced against androids you know, so like in the world of Detroit being human, actual human, like yeah, like injustice between real humans is kind of gone. But humans are really mean to androids, and that's the new thing that's bad. Right? Okay. You know, but then I guess that's the same thing. You can have your like white man android who's like who's now the victim because he's a robot. Something that to tangent it even further. I thought that I often something I I often think about almost on a daily basis, right? Yeah. 
you know like in, you know like harry potter yeah you know like yeah. you know like the death eaters they're basically like magic nazis yeah but like how do they feel about like lgbtq people or black people is it like as long as you're just like a magic nazi like anything goes they just have a problem with muggles and yeah uh, they go that's i mean that's exactly the same kind of thing we're talking about right right there's like there's a new kind of uh yeah prejudice in society and it's between people who are wizards and those who aren't wizards yeah yeah rather than dealing with the, but the really he's very woke in other respects voldemort just this one thing he's got a problem with well the death Eaters is diverse there's a there's a is there i don't know there's no black people in harry potter so it's hard to tell there's very few of them <laughs> yeah <laughs> Um, Come on, his his snake used to be a Chinese woman. That's she. Yeah, Nagini. How can he be racist? His snake was a Chinese <laughs> woman. Uh, yeah, I mean, maybe it would make for a more interesting character if he was constantly talking uh, in very progressive terms about other kinds of struggles. But he was just uh, like a eugenicist when it came to uh, wizards' genes. Yeah, you know, it's like uh, Longford was against the death penalty, but he was a massive homophobe. You know, it's like, it's like Hitler being a vegetarian. <laughs> So uh, Voldemort uh, is really cool with gay marriage. Chairman Mao was really nice to his dogs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Voldemort, like, reads the speeches of Martin Luther King to his followers. Another thing, right? If Magneto is supposed to be the Malcolm X, why is Professor X Martin Luther King? When they were naming these characters mm. and basing them on civil rights leaders. He should have been called Magneto X. Yeah. And he should have been called <laughs> Professor King. Yeah. <laughs> That would have been a bit on the nose, maybe, Professor King, but that's a good point, though, and uh, and uh, I'll be raising that uh, with Marvel uh, myself. Cool. <laughs> so just leave that with me. All right, friends, uh, that's some of the biggest thoughts we've got time for this week. Uh, next time, what will we be reviewing? I'll be reviewing Late Night. The Emma Thompson. The Emma Thompson, Mindy, Mindy Kaling film. I was supposed to be reviewing Sunset. I might go see that again because it's a big, weighty film, and you need know, to get your head around need it. Need to get my head around it. Um, for that, but it was very good. That was early, early review. Thought it was good. Okay, interesting. Look forward to hearing you expound upon that. Uh, if I if I can, if you can, if you can find the words to do so. I don't know what I will see, but I'll see something, friends. Maybe just go see John Wick three again and review that again. But we'll find out. Until then, thank you for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye. Let's do it. So yeah, finally World Burger is open in London, first time outside the US. What can you tell us about it? Very excited to share our family experience with the families here. Uh, you know, I've worked here many times. We found this location ourselves and uh, just so excited to be here. I think we're going to do very well here. My brother is an amazing chef, which is why we opened the restaurant, because of his talent and ability. So we're, we're really excited. How are these burgers so special? What makes them so good? It's the well. First of all, we have an amazing blend of chuck, um, brisket, and um, what's the other kind of beef. But it's it's the quality, it's the preparation. My brother is a superstar chef. And you've uh, been British people are gonna love this kind of. Absolutely, absolutely. I've seen a, a lot of other concepts that have worked around here, and we have such such a more, uh, a bigger offering. You know, we do the impossible. The first one to launch the Impossible Burger. We have healthy fare, salad. Types of different stuff. We have a wide array on the menu, so I think people are going to really enjoy it. And finally, my brother's going to do some specialty items just for for the UK. Yep. How, how do you like London yourself? Love it. I've worked here many times, so you give me an excuse to come back when I'm not shooting a movie.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.